Well, thank you very much indeed, Tony, for your very warm welcome. It's a, a real pleasure and uh, a genuine privilege to be here sharing in Christian worship with you and to bring God's word to you. This is my, my first visit to Walton, um, uh, but uh, it's not for want of trying, and I have heard very good things about you all. Now, when I say I've heard very good things about you all, I'd better explain. When my wife and I moved to, to Nottingham uh, a few years ago uh, and joined Cornerstone Church, as you've heard, we, uh, one of the first people that we got to know and befriended uh, were uh, John and Marion Bourne. And um, they speak so warmly of you all and indeed of their time here uh, at Walton. In fact, just this morning I was speaking to their daughter, Hannah, and she was telling me that uh, she was married here uh, a number of years ago. And that's something I imagine that uh, some of you um, will remember. And when I said it's not for want of trying, uh, the fact that I haven't been here before, I think I'd better explain that as well to you, because uh, I have been invited here before, but not by you. Isn't that curious? Not by you. Um, Davenport Road Church in Derby uh, booked a, a day away here a while back, and uh, they invited me to be the. They invited me to be their speaker for the day. And then we were all put into lockdown, and you know the rest. So I'm I'm very glad at last to to be here uh, at, at Walton, and uh, I bring the greetings, of course, from our fellowship at uh, at Cornerstone. Before we look at God's Word, then let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you take your Word and plant it deep in our hearts so that it would produce the fruit of obedience, repentance, faith, and genuine joy. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please do turn with me to Mark's Gospel and chapter 12, and that uh, rather curious mix of stories that we had read to us uh, just a few moments ago which we're going to be looking at together. So I think you will find it useful to have a, a copy of the Scriptures in your hands to look at. We're going to look at, at that um, passage under the title of Getting Life in Its Proper Perspective. Getting Life in Its Proper Perspective. There is a very famous story told about Sir Christopher Wren, one of England's greatest architects. On one occasion, he walked incognito among the men who were working on St. Paul's Cathedral in London, uh, which Wren, of course, had designed. Uh, what are you doing? He asked one particular labourer. I'm 
Cutting a piece of stone, was the reply. Well, Wren asked the same question to a second person. And the reply came back, well, I'm earning five shillings and two pence a day. Wren walked on and asked the same question to a third man. Well, this third man looked at Wren and said, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren build a beautiful cathedral. The same question, three different answers. You know, in life it is vitally important that we get things into their proper perspective. And what is true about life in general is equally true, I believe, about the Christian life. Too often, or at least so it seems to me, we struggle on. We plod forward. We take two steps forward before taking a step backwards. In other words, our growth in the Christian life is all too often fitful and sporadic. Well, why is that? Because we don't see matters in their proper perspective. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, there are many other different reasons why we, why we might be held back spiritually, not least of all, indwelling sin. But this is surely one of them, isn't it? We often fail to see things as they really are, whether it be in relation to ourselves or to our faith or indeed to our Saviour himself. And in a very real sense, that is what the passage before us brings to our attention this evening. Jesus is challenging us here to see things properly, neither to underestimate who he is, nor overestimate our own importance, and when it comes to Christian duty, he is challenging us to have a proper estimation of our own actions. Well, let's have a look at this in a little more detail, shall we? So, as our passage begins, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem in triumph on what we call Palm Sunday, and he is now spending his last few days in Jerusalem before he will be unjustly tried and killed. Now, Mark 12, 35 to 44, takes place specifically in the temple precincts. We're told this in verse 35, and again we're, uh, we're told it in verse 41. And Jesus, well, Jesus in this passage is going to take aim at the teachers of the law. And in particular, in verses 35 to 37, and this is our first lesson this evening, he's going to tell them, to have a proper view of Jesus. Have a proper view of Jesus. 
Well, I wasn't expecting that this evening. That is from outside, I presume. Thank you for that reassurance. Have a proper view of Jesus. Verses 35 to 37. Now, these verses, they're tricky to understand, aren't they? When they were read to us just now, did you manage to get your head around them? Well, if so, good for you. Because they're not easy, are they? Uh, one commentator has described these, uh, these uh, three verses as a conundrum. And another commentator has called them a riddle. And I suspect the meaning for most of us, if not all of us, is not immediately clear. But notice what happens. In verse 35, Jesus asks a question which he himself answers in verse 37 with another question, the implications of which are left hanging in the air. The crowds in the temple precinct and us, we are left to work out what he is getting at. So let me try to make sense of it all. It appears that the teachers of the law often referred to the Messiah, the Christ, as the son of David. We see that in verse 35, the son of David. Indeed, this was a, a common way to refer to the one whom Israel was expecting uh, to deliver them from their enemies. It was a term, son of David, it was a term which emphasized the Messiah's humanity. He was going to be a descendant of David. He would be a special person, certainly. He would be of royal descent. He was going to be of David's line. But he would still be a person who, because he would be a descendant of David, would therefore be inferior to David. Do you see? That's what the term son of David implied. But Jesus directs his hearers to Psalm 110, where the author, David himself, refers to the Messiah as my Lord. That little phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, that's the really tricky bit, isn't it? if we're being honest. That's the, that's the bit that gets us a bit confused. Well, the first mention of Lord refers to God, and the second mention of Lord refers to the Messiah. Uh, to put it in New Testament terms, the first Lord refers to God the Father, and the second Lord refers to God the Son. Now, Jesus is asking, how can the Messiah be junior to David, as implied by the term son of David, but also be senior to David, as implied by the fact that David calls the Messiah my Lord, my Lord. 
Do you see? Does that make sense? So, is Jesus saying that the Messiah is not the son of David? No, not at all. That was an important title, and indeed the early church continued to use it. But what Jesus is saying is that the Messiah will not simply be David's son. In other words, someone who, like David, would defeat Israel's enemies. But he would also be David's Lord. Someone much more important than David. Someone who came to do something far greater, more far-reaching than anything merely political or nationalistic. The Messiah would be, as the hymn writer puts it, great David's greater son. Do you see? The problem with the title Son of David is not that it claims too much, but that it claims too little. The teachers of the law saw the Messiah in purely human terms, and therefore they underestimated the Messiah and what he had come to do. Well, now, this misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that has not gone away, has it? A survey was carried out by the Evangelical Alliance a few years ago, and the results of the survey um, uh, said this. Apparently, 22% of adults in this country thought that Jesus was a mythical or a fictional person. But on top, on top of that, another 17%, while acknowledging that Jesus really lived, they saw him simply as a normal human being and no more. So putting those two statistics together, 40% of the adults surveyed reckoned that Jesus was either fictional or just a man. This evidence provides an enormous challenge for us in the 21st century church, doesn't it? And in particular, how do we reach out to the unchurched? But what about within the church, I wonder? What about us? How do we see Jesus? Do we see him as a good man? A great man? A fabulous teacher who was heroically dedicated to his people? But other people are like that too. And if that's all we see in Jesus, then we are no better than the teachers of the law about whom Jesus railed. Allow me to quote some words that Michael Green once wrote as he argued passionately against those who see Jesus as merely being a good man. This is what uh, Michael Green wrote. Jesus, a good man, that is the one thing he cannot be. 
That is the one thing the men on the spot never thought of calling him. Some of them were terrified of him. Others believed him. Yet others hounded him to death. But nobody patronizingly said of him, what a splendid preacher we had in the synagogue last Sabbath. You must come along and hear him sometime. Michael Green goes on. Jesus does not present himself to us as the best example of the human race for our edification. He comes to us rather from beyond the human race as God himself hastening to our rescue. He expects of us, indeed he demands of us, not our admiration, but our allegiance, not our patronage, but our hearts. He has the rights of God Almighty over us. Friends, have we got a proper view of Jesus? Do we see him as he really is? Is he our friend, our brother, our example? I do hope so, for he is all of those things. But is he our saviour? Is he our redeemer? Have we put our trust in him as the one who bore our sins on the cross? Is he Lord of our everyday lives? Well, as Jesus' listeners heard what he had to say with barely unconcealed delight, as we read in verse 37, Jesus now takes aim at the teachers of the law in another way. And in verses 38 to 40, he takes a swipe at their behavior and the lesson for them, and I have to say for us, is this. Have a proper view of ourselves. Have a proper view of ourselves. The picture that Jesus depicts of these religious teachers is really rather unpleasant, isn't it? Firstly, we could say that they were people who wanted to be noticed through the clothes they wore, by the people they met, verse 38, the length of their prayers, verse 40. Yes, they were people who wanted to be noticed, but they were also proud. They wanted the best seats both at religious and social occasions, verse 39. Do you see, too, how greedy they were? Verse 40. Financially ruining the very vulnerable people that they should have been protecting. Remember, uh, these were not supposedly worldly people with no thought for God. No, these were religious leaders who should have known better. But they were selfish, overbearing hypocrites. And oh, how terribly easy it is to point the finger of blame at them, isn't it? You know, the scriptures talk often about the importance of our hearts. 
the importance of our motives. As far as God is concerned, why we do something is much more important than what we do. Did you notice that some of the things that these teachers of the law were doing were wrong? <clears throat> For example, the way they treated the widows. But in other cases, what they were doing could be described at worst as being neutral, wearing striking clothing, saying long prayers, greeting people in public places, etc. But whether it was wrong or whether it was neutral, Jesus is concerned about their hearts. Why were they doing these things? So, my friends, I have to ask, what about us? Can we be sure that our motives are always right and proper? Why do we come to this place for worship on a Sunday? Why do we help out with the children's work? Why do we attend the prayer meeting? Why do we regularly visit that housebound person? Why do we volunteer to take Sunday services? Now, don't misunderstand me. These things are good. But our Savior is more interested in our motives, in our hearts. As someone has said, it is possible to do things in Christ's name, but without Christ's approval. My friends, the human heart can be terribly, terribly deceitful. There is a story told about a conversation between the, the famous heart transplant pioneer, Dr. Christian Barnard, and one of his patients, a man called Philip Blayberg. Well, as they were chatting in the uh, Grutscher Hospital in Johannesburg one evening, Dr. Barnard said to his patient suddenly, would you like to see your old heart? Imagine, would you like to see your old heart? And Blayberg replied that he would. So the surgeon walked over to a cupboard, he picked up a glass jar, and he handed it to his patient. So Blayberg looked at his heart, the first man in history to be able to do so. And before handing it back, Blayberg said to the surgeon, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. My friends, we all need to examine our hearts carefully. How much trouble they can cause us, for we can so easily deceive ourselves. It is so important that we continually stop to consider our motives so that we have a proper view of ourselves. Well, the final scene from our passage acts as quite a contrast to the self-serving hypocrisy of the teachers of the law. This famous story of the 
widow's mite provides our final lesson this evening. Have a proper view of our giving. Verses 41 to 44. Have a proper view of our giving. The action here takes place as before in and around the temple. And we're told that Jesus takes a seat and watches the people bring their offerings for the temple treasury. What we know about the customs of the time is that in the court of the women, uh, that is the point in the temple precinct beyond which only the men could go, well, in the court of the women, there was a row of 13 large collection boxes, and people could and did go there to watch people make their offerings. Can you believe it? Well, you can be sure that a number of wealthy people were not exactly upset about being seen making their donations. Well, I'm also told that these um, offering receptacles were made of metal. So you can imagine the fearsome din was, that was made when the wealthy brought their gifts. No notes in those days, of course, only coins. But then Jesus sees a widow whose offering was so tiny in comparison with other gifts. I do wonder if anyone else had noticed her in the hustle and bustle of temple life. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Because no giving to the Lord's work goes unnoticed by the Savior. Now the widow's gift was worth only a fraction of a penny, we're told in, in verse 42. Literally, quite literally, probably in the notes in your Bible, you'll see that it says she put in two lepta. Apparently these coins were so small that they could be blown off the palm of a hand by a small gust of wind. Outwardly, what she gave was tiny. But Jesus teaches us that she put in more than all the others. Why? Because she gave out of her poverty. Humanly speaking, she put in a fraction of a penny. Verse 42. But from Jesus' perspective, she put in everything. All she had to live on. Well, the lesson is clear, isn't it? And, and, and it flies in the face of what society at large believes. In Jesus' eyes, the amount we give is not as important as the manner in which we give it. Small gifts are more pleasing to God than large gifts when they are given out of gratitude and generosity, when they are given as symbols of our surrender to him. In one of his books, Michael Griffiths tells the story of a woman who was invited to a Zulu church in southern Africa. She went along and she was 
conspicuous in the church because she was the only white person there. Well, the other believers welcomed her. They translated for her and they made her thoroughly at home. Then they had a collection to build a new Zulu church down the road. But as the service progressed, they took up a second collection for Zulu Christian brethren who had no shoes. Now by this time, the white lady had put in all the money she had with her. Well, imagine how staggered she was when they took up a third collection for petrol, for our white sister, as they put it. Well, that woman came out with an entirely new perspective on Christian giving. Why? Because of what she had seen in others less fortunate than she was. Friends, for our Lord Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. And none of it, none of us, I say, can surely walk away from this passage about the widow's offering this evening and not consider afresh what and how we give financially to the Lord's work. Well, I began this evening with a story about Sir Christopher Wren. And I'm going to finish with a, another famous story, this time about President Kennedy of the United States of America. One day, JFK was making a visit to the Space Center, NASA, and in the course of his tour of the facility, he came upon a janitor who was mopping the floor. The president asked the man what he did at NASA. And the employee famously replied, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Here was a man who looked beyond the everyday and who looked beyond the commonplace to see matters in their greater, higher perspective. My friends, this evening, let's get things in their proper perspective. Let's have a proper view of Jesus, the Son of God, as well as the Son of David. Let's have a proper view of ourselves and ensure that we do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition. And let's have a proper view of our giving, making certain that our giving is a reflection of a life surrendered to Christ. And to God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's just bow our heads for a few moments in the quiet as we reflect on what God has been saying to us this evening.